Welcome to the ADS Podcast. This is where we talk about all things audience development for the arts related. Join us for discussions about audience building tips, ideas, concepts, and philosophies with sometimes brought in special guests. And now, here's your latest podcast for you. Hi, this is Shoshana with Audience Development Specialists. So today we have a very special guest, fundraising expert Mark Pittman. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about him before we introduce him to the show. Mark A. Pittman helps leaders, especially in nonprofits, lead their teams with more effectiveness and less stress. The author of Ask Without Fear, he is the founder of the Concord Leadership Group and FundraisingCoach.com. He's also the executive director of the nonprofitacademy.com, an advisory panel member of Roguer, a prestigious international fundraising think tank. He is the husband to his best friend and the father of three amazing kids. And if you drive by him on the road, he'll be singing 80s tunes loud enough to embarrass his family. So let's welcome Mark to the show. At this time, I'd like to introduce Mark Pittman to the ADS podcast. Hi, Mark. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you? Good, good. And and what's the weather like in Greenville, South Carolina? Oh, my goodness. We love it here. Uh, today, it's going to be around 90. So oh. we are just enjoying uh, – and, and it's been like this. We, we get a couple days like this in Maine where we used to live, but um, we're really we're really glad to live where the sun lives also. Maine's beautiful. So is Greenville, <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. And in fact, it, it's kind of ironic, but Boulder, Colorado right now is rainy and cold. So <laughs> the sunny Boulder, Colorado area is not living up to its name. So, <laughs> But that's wonderful. And um, I also want to ask you this, which I told my listeners when I was uh, telling them a little bit about you. You said something to the effect that you embarrass your family by singing 80 songs. So I wanted to know what was your favorite 80s song to belt out? Oh my goodness. Well, so right, that's a great question. Uh, right, <laughs> right now I've, I've almost had to update that because it's now my kids are, are singing them along with me. I've done a good job of parenting, I think. Um, and, uh, <laughs> the, um, I think it was, we were at a, uh, my wife and my daughter were at a crosswalk in Greenville and, uh, my 14 year old daughter, uh, just as they were waiting, just went, shot through the heart, and you're <laughs> to blame. And this big six foot guy, my, you know, my 14 year old is just a petite, she's power packed and petite. Um, and, uh, this big six foot hulking guy turned over and said, great. Now that's stuck in my head for the rest of the day. And. How do you well, even know that? You're too young to know that. <laughs> so. Well, that's great. You're passing on the 80s love. I love it. I'm also an 80s kid. So um, I mainly listen to the police and Peter Gabriel. But I admit, you know, if a Cindy Lauper or Pat Benatar song came on, I was there. <laughs> yeah. there was. Pat, we have some good playlists on Spotify. And so Pat, Pat Benatar is one of them. Um, there's a song that I don't even know why it's, it's all fired up. That's her. Uh, fired up, fired up. It, it just, it's fun. I mean, there's so much good from the 80s. That is and true. the cheesy badness. That's <laughs> true. The cheesy badness of it all. It's so much fun. So, why don't we get started on actually what we're here to talk about today is building relationships for effective fundraising. And you being the fundraising expert, and I, I noticed your your website and the books that you've been writing. 
And I wanted to bring you on because I think you touched base with a lot of the things that I tell my listeners in, in effective fundraising and, and building relationships to do it right. So the one thing that I noticed about you is you pretty much do exactly what I tell my clients to do. Um, you, you brand very well. So I don't know if, if you go to fundraising, is it still going to be fundraisingcoach.com? Yeah, fundraising okay. Fundraisingcoach.com. You will see a big red bow tie. <laughs> and the big red bow tie is, is part of Mark's brand and, and is, is fabulous because you don't forget it. it. It's definitely something that sticks in your mind. And what I love about that, too, is when you get a good brand, like that was – I just wore my bow tie since I was three. Um, and when I went for a graphic designer, they said, well, you need to work the bow tie into it. It was just totally clear to her. It wasn't an express part of my thing yet. Uh, and then readers and, blo and blog readers and book readers told me that I needed to have a business card that was shaped like a bow tie. So now all of my business cards are shaped like bow ties, and they have the image <laughs> of a bow tie my daughters gave me for Father's Day, which has been – with little hearts on it and stuff. And it's great. I've never had a business card that makes people smile. But um, so part of being, a, part of, I'm sure you tell people this, but part of being a good, a well-branded organization is listening to people smarter than yourself. <laughs> exactly. But it's also listening to yourself and who you really are. True. True. So, True. I mean, it, it seems to fit you very well. And, and um, the other thing that I caught from your branding is your tagline, which is fundraising is an extreme sport. So talk a little bit about that. Why, why do you associate fundraising with extreme sports? Well, I've never, I've never done bungee jumping before, um, and, and but I've I've heard that that rush of adrenaline is what gets you addicted to it. Or there's a one of my social media friends is really into skydiving, and so those type of extreme activities. But um, when you ask someone for money and you have to just shut up because it's their turn to talk and it's their turn to process and figure out what you're saying. Right. It, it feels like you've just jumped over a cliff. You've walked up the mountain with this person. You've had this relationship, and then you're asking them to invest in your cause, typically in a more significant way than they have. And that silence as a verbal extrovert is like falling off a cliff. Um, wow, that's so an interesting way to that put it. <laughs> rush of, so first of all, it's that adrenaline rush of you're totally out of control. Uh, it's all up to them from now on. It's not up to you. Um that for until they they speak next, and then there are things that you can you can do to help save it if they said no initially. But the other thing is, whenever I do a fundraising training, I ask people in the room, how many people here in this room have asked people for more money than they thought they should have, and seen the donor's eyes light up with joy at being able to give. And <laughs> invariably, I have people raise their hand, and I said, so everybody else in this room, I just did this with a board uh, here in Greenville on Saturday, so I want everybody else to look at the people with their raised hands, because I want you to believe by the end of this training that maybe that's possible. And that's where the real extreme um, aspect of it comes in, is when you see the joy that people get from giving, you realize, wow, you just don't know. Each solicitation becomes, is that going to be the next hit? Am I going to get to make somebody else that excited about investing in what we're doing? So those, so it's a double end. It's that once when you're being quiet and you feel like you're totally out of control, and then it's the other, the hit of adrenaline of seeing the joy and a donor's face light up. I love that. So that really does ring true with extreme sports. So that's that's right on target then, and I'm glad I asked that question. I am too. It's kind of odd because sometimes every once in a while I'll get a reporter asking me about biking for a cause or hiking, you know, Everest or something, and because they see the extreme sport tagline. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right. Well, it's a conversation starter too, which Absolutely. is fabulous for a brand. The other thing that I think you do really well is you you definitely tell people that they need to do the research. And and for fundraising, that is a very important part of the process. And you also help them with planning and give them ideas for a really solid plan. And that's basically what I tell my clients, too. So um, I'm so glad to have you here to talk about all of well, this. Well, that whole research aspect is so interesting because it's it, you can run either either end of it. You can either overdo it and never get out and talk to people, um, or you can not do it and then really risk messing up. Uh, right. Or under asking. So it's, yeah, research is such an important balance. It's not, uh, I've had people camp there and never move on in the process. And I've had it, you know, most nonprofits skip it because they just think it's obvious. They don't need to research it. What they're doing is obvious to them. So it should be to everyone else. Wow. And then they end up on with egg on their face when they go there and the donor's looking at them with a, a puzzled face. Like, why are you asking me for this amount of money? Oh, my <laughs> goodness. I used to do I, for I, in different stints. I've done feasibility studies for capital campaigns. And so a feasibility study, you get 60 to 80 p- p- people that are the closest to your organization or influencers that you'd like to be close to your organization to talk about your organization. It's very structured and it's really good to have a third party do this because people will lie to you. If you're with the organization, they don't want to hurt your feelings, but they'll tell, they, they let their guard down when it's a, an independent consultant. It's really interesting. But I w- walked into one person's house on the North Shore of Boston um, for this interview, feasibility study interview for a large hospital system. And they, you know, pleasant couple, nice split level, clearly into environmental causes based on the logos and the way they had structured their house and everything. And we sat down and they finally looked at me and said, so I don't really know why you're here. We're not we're not that close to the hospital, and to the hospital, they're one of the top, ten, you know, top one percent of donors to this hospital system. But there's no relationship at all. They're, um, yeah, wow. yeah, that exactly. It leads us into you know how shocking. important is building relationships to fundraising, and and that story says it all. That you could have somebody that donates, but if if they're not in the family. So to speak, they're they're gonna feel still outside of it. Uh, that's why I like I love the uh, the housing debacle. That not I don't love the, the love the debacle or whatever happened. I think one of the greatest things that happened for nonprofits coming out of the 2008 2009 bubble in the United States is that we thought we had relationships with donors because they gave every year, and so that became our metric. If they make a gift every 12 months, we there we are buds with them. They're they're our friend. Mm-hmm. And people's economics, both really and psychically. So sometimes there were some people that still had assets, but they're all of a sudden psychically poor because they didn't have as many assets as they used to. And others that just didn't have disposable, you know, had the income to give. Um, when they didn't have it and they had to prioritize, okay, these are the 10 organizations we give to. Who are our top three? And we mm-hmm. didn't make the cut. We found out that we weren't building relationships with our annual stuff. We were actually invoicing people. We were sending them a bill and they were paying a bill and when it became, but we were an expendable bill. And so what we want exactly. to do with relationships is become on their top three so that when they have to restrict their giving, they feel, uh, the mutual respect because that's what so much of fundraising is. Um, and, and that they're making a difference, uh, not just that the organization's cool and great, but that they themselves are making a difference by investing in it. And that's what sets us apart. That's fabulous. And I, I definitely tell people that the more of a relationship you have with somebody, 
the easier it is to actually get the donation. So it, it kind of is, it goes hand in hand. And because we all know that our friends and family are there to support us. So the, the more the relationship goes towards that end of the spectrum, the, it's going to be a no brainer. They're going to be like, of course, I'm going to help you out. Well, and here's <laughs> something that I hear a lot over the years. I've been at this for a long time. And one of the things that I hear from people is, um, well, I can't possibly ask them. Uh, because we're too close now. So there's a point, particularly with founders of, or, and executive directors, they feel like they've crossed the line of employee supporter to friend. Mm-hmm. And they create this artificial barrier of now I can't ask them for money. Um, and I just, you know, you're, just for everybody listening, your donors are smarter than that. <laughs> they understand that you're a nonprofit and you need money to run and run. Mm-hmm. They see it coming and it's not, it, it's, yeah, we're not, yeah, it's just so, it's so funny. We're not surprising anyone when we ask them to invest in our cause. And when we do it right, we're not asking them to invest in our cause as much as invest in something that they care about. Exactly. It becomes their cause too. Exactly. Okay. Important. Well, I had a story. I'll, I'll just, I'll just insert this in here because I want to get more from you. But I had a client that was afraid to ask her parents for money and she was uh, putting on a new music festival in our area. And I said, no, no, these are the very people that want to support you. Why don't you try asking? So it was really hard for her to break through that barrier you were talking about. And when she asked her father and said, you know, I'm putting on this music festival. It means the world to me. Um, Would you want to support me? And she was like really timid about it. And her father's like, you know what? I have been waiting years for you to ask me that I can support you in some of your projects. And I would be so proud to do so. Wow. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, right then and there, I'm like, this really reinforces the fact that we kind of have it upside down. We're like networking with people we barely know and asking money from people we barely know. And it should be starting from that relationship and those people and then kind of keep building to get more people as your friends and family. And those are the people that are going to support you when when you really need it. It's so interesting how we let our own, um, you know, we're such storytelling beings. And what I I find is that we often will fill the the silence whether the, with a story, and we tend to go negative. Oh, I can't possibly ask them, or oh, they haven't returned my call. They must hate me. I must have really offended them. So I I try to recommend people that if you're going to lie to yourself, because that's just a lie. They haven't told you you've offended them, so you're creating right. a lie. So if you're going to exactly. lie to yourself, why not lie to yourself well? Hey, I might as well call them again. I bet they're just waiting to give away money. I mean, it's just as untrue or possibly just as true, but at least you'll have a better attitude when you're picking up the call. Right, right, right. And it'll help you take the fear out of it. And we'll get to that because Mark wrote a book that I will be talking about at the end of this podcast that I want all of you to know about. So we both established, and I hope our listeners are now with us, that Building the relationship is super important because the more you get to that spectrum, the easier it's going to be, and that'll help alleviate any fears in asking as well. Um, how can we build more authentic relationships with our donors and connect them more to our causes then? Well, I think part of it starts with where we were about the um, the doing the research. You'd have to know what your cause is first. Most I was talking to one nonprofit guy who called me for coaching. He was calling me to hire me as a coach. And I asked him, how much do you want to raise? And he couldn't answer the question. It took him 20 minutes. Uh, he ran two wow. nonprofits and he had a third one. 
And part of it was, you know, government, there were some government grants, there were fee for service, you know, you know, for your listeners selling tickets and having corporate sponsorships or something, there may be some other ways that people are giving. Um, but doing the research on our cause, what is it we do? And then how much does it cost to do that? And that can break us, break down the, the, um, you can use a gift range calculator to put your total number in and see what kind of levels of gifts should you be asking for. And then you start building, this is all developing the relationship because then you look at, oh, to raise a hundred thousand dollars, we, it, the, the trends show us that we need to have one of those gifts be about 25% of that, 10 to 25% of that goal. So who do we know that could give us twenty five thousand dollars if we're raising a hundred thousand? Who do we know that? Who are the five people that we think maybe could give us twenty five thousand? Who are the you know the next five people that we think maybe could give us fifteen thousand? And that starts helping you focus your relationship on what your ends are. I'm a Franklin Covey coach. Begin with the end in mind is part of it, and you'd have to know how much am I hoping to solicit this person for uh, at some point, uh, and then you can be much more focused about what would it take to get them there. So what do they need to know about our organization? What do we need to know about them? These are all on paper. Let's get out into the, their natural habitat and see where what it is. And it could be bringing them. I mean, theaters and, and arts organizations have an amazing uh, untapped resource. They have performances. And so you can have, and I'm sure you tell people this, but you, the backstage tour, you don't have to do anything special. Uh, you could just invite donors. Hey, this is, this is the act. This is what you're, you know, come and get a sneak peek. We do, we can't let you in too far because these are real, these are real performers doing their thing, but check this out. We'd love to have you come in and see some of the, the, what you're helping make possible. Um, and all of that staging of your own, of we can't let you in too far and all, it lets them know that they're on this sort of secret backstage, really <laughs> special access. Um, and, what we have found is when we start sharing donors, even if they're prospects, not yet donors, the backstage stuff, seeing the work actually happen, the stuff that we see every day and we get so tired of because it's just our daily thing, it isn't daily for the donors or the prospects. And when the people that are doing the daily stuff, the performers, the staffers are seeing people appreciate that, it actually raises the morale within the organization too. People actually care about what we do. That's amazing. So those are all relationship building things that it, that can happen during the ask or before the ask or after. That's the beautiful thing about relationships. You're always learning about people and you're always engaging them. Uh, right. So even after the ask, it's just another level of the process is to, to show them, hey, look at the great work you did. Um, and most nonprofits don't do that very well. We don't share. We talk about how well we did <laughs> with their money, but they don't care. They want to know how well they did because they gave to us. Yeah, that's an important part is I, I do tell people I have the, the BDA. You got to show BDA and that's before, during and after. Oh, so in almost everything I talk about, uh, even building the relationship needs to be a before, during and after. And what I find interesting is you brought to the table that yes, you need to know yourself very well, which is what I tell my clients all the time. And you need to get to know them too. So um, once you get to have them in your world a little bit more, involve them. And I love the, the backstage uh, example that you gave us. And But I think it's also like kind of going backstage in their lives too a little bit. And, and like yeah. any that they tell you, like if they tell you that they enjoy hiking or something, which around here is very popular, that's a kernel of gold right there to like build a relationship on. 
because then you can go, oh, yeah, I like hiking, too, and blah, blah, blah. And you, you get into a more authentic conversation with them instead of, like, show me the money, you know? Well, and I think that's why it's so important that uh, people that are in nonprofits are in service organizations outside of their nonprofit. Um, we get to know people better when we're working side by side with on a project with them. So, uh, you know, for me in one organization, one community, Rotary was where all the leaders were, and others it's Kiwanis, some it's Lions, what, you know, whatever the service organization is, uh, Junior League, um, it, it, it is helpful if it's fulfilling for you as an individual. Um, but if it's mildly irritating and still mostly fulfilling, it can be still worth it because you're starting to interact with people on a, uh, build relationships on a, on a equal basis. I have a, a picture that I got from Portland, Maine of a person with a sandwich board on that says, I am not your ATM. And part of what we need to be doing is showing that. I've been training people that for years, and so it was really cool to see it uh, on the side of the street. I whipped out, got a photograph, said, can I put this all over social media? I said, sure. Um, But we don't do a good job of telling donors, talking to donors. We do a good job of talking about ourselves. And it makes sense. We think that they need to know that our theater or our venue is, is worthy of their money, so we do all this marketing speak to them which is about our, our corporate organization. Um, we, it, but they don't care. It's like, uh, the teacher on peanuts, you know, it's wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and it's when we start using the word you and you as a donor and you doing this and your investment has made this happen that that's what we, the, the, the science studies on brain research, the sociological studies on what actually moves people to action. Uh, the economics people that are that are studying this stuff all show that the more you use you in the grammar instead the less you use we as an organization um, the better people respond and it and it becomes more fun for those of us asking because we're not taking from anyone anymore we're giving an opportunity for people legitimately not in a kind of everybody's in a, nobody's an employee everybody's associate sort of you know whitewashing speech thing it's not that we're just giving an opportunity because we don't want to call it an ask it's because we really are getting to connect with people where and places that they value and haven't been able to invest in. And that becomes fulfilling. So I'm hearing, which is, which is very interesting is on both sides, building the relationships makes it easier to fundraise. So if you build a relationship, the person is going to be more comfortable with you and feel more involved and, and want to give more and you're providing them the opportunity to do so. And that's awesome. On the other side, and we're kind of going into this question next, is the fact that building relationships will take the fundraising ask to a different level. And instead of it being so um, kind of tight business-like, it's going to eliminate some fear because you'll know this person more and it'll be a lot easier to relate and, and easier to ask. Yeah, you feel like there's there's it's not you're hoping that you'll make a connection that is meaningful to the person. But as you get to know them a little bit, mm-hmm. I mean, it can be just over a cup of coffee. I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly. years yeah. and years of work. Uh, but as you get to know them, you get to realize, oh, yeah, no, uh, this could be more. You, you just get to fine tune your ask. Um, and and you, yeah, well, we can get into the ask. But that I think it's really important that. Um, there's that mutual thing, but there's also the don't, I mean, don't be afraid of asking on the first date. One of the things I find a lot of people, especially with um, performing in arts organizations, is that they think somehow, they're, it's incredibly egotistical, even though it doesn't sound like it, to say I don't ask on the first date if the executive director says that or the board chair. Um, because that's saying that just because you haven't met with that person 
that does not mean that person doesn't have a, a relationship with your organization. It's working with a community theater who uh, in rural Maine that um, they they thought that because they hadn't asked people for money, they just sold tickets. They had to then build this long, ornate, and complex process to ask people, and uh, they didn't. They had a high retention of t- you know say annual ticket holders. They had great quality performances that really struck people emotionally. So there were all these touches throughout the year, and it was community people. It was a community little theater. So it was all these multiple touch points, and um, they were they were just short. They were actually you know hurting their own budgets by not helping people figure out ways to invest in them more. Wow, that is interesting. So if you don't provide the opportunities, and and I do tell people too that you do need to provide the opportunities in many different ways so they know that you really do need the support that you're asking for. The asking on the first date is interesting because there is, even in my industry, in the arts, we, we do kind of say, uh, don't kiss on the first date, that type of thing. Yeah, um, and it sounds so, really pious. It sounds really respectful, but it mm-hmm. could be the worst, most right, narcissistic right. thing to do. Um, exactly, and and I agree that you kind of should feel it out. I mean, if it turns out that you're having this magical, and I think coffee is magical. It seems <laughs> like that is such a great, it's like an elixir for, for collaboration and connection and stuff like that. So, uh, yes, take your, take your donors out to coffee and get to it, know them better. And if they, if they start getting excited yes. and you really feel that great energy coming between the two of you, then yeah, why not? I mean, people have kissed on the first date before. You so know? What I, yeah. Well, what I want to make sure everybody do, uh, doesn't hear me saying is I'm not saying lie to your donors. I'm not saying uh, invite them out for a cup of coffee and then pop the question. <laughs> um, the, what I, if you if you invite them out for I think honesty and integrity are the two biggest fundraising tools in anybody's tool belt. And if you're honest with them and saying, hey, I would love to get together with a cup of coffee and talk about the the, the theater, then you can. Um, it, and they start getting really excited about something you happen to be fundraising for that's part of your mission. You could with honesty and full integrity say, you know what, I didn't come here to ask you this time. So you're setting the the parameters of the relationship. I am going to ask you. I didn't come here to ask you this time, but could I tell you more about the scholarship process that's happening so that we can get these act, these performances in front of schools, or should I call follow up with you in a couple of weeks? And what's interesting is sometimes, and this is the beauty of doing it this way, when you get to that point, sometimes they just offer. And then yeah. you don't even have to ask. It is just well, amazing. okay. So, so you're the, building that momentum, and then sometimes they're like, you know what? I want to get involved. How do I do that? So the test flows. Uh, should I ask you now, or should I ask you in two weeks? A lot. It's like saying, do you want to go to, to your kid? Not do you want to go to bed, but do you want to go to bed now or in a half hour? So you think of <laughs> two good options, and your follow up after oh that is awesome. Your follow up is just, hey, I'm being a person of integrity. I'm being a person of my word. I promise to call you back and and uh, get a, get together with you about this, or you asked me to call you back in two weeks, and it's been two weeks. And so your follow-up doesn't feel like chasing or hounding. It feels like fulfilling, being a person of integrity. Um, but what you're saying, too, is if they ask you, what can we do? That's why the research is so important. Because if you say, well, we don't, I don't know exactly. If you don't right. have a clear end in mind, um, you might miss the magical moment where they're, you know, if you say, well, let me get back to you in two weeks, anybody that's tried getting back to somebody in two weeks knows that it can be a chasing game. Uh, right. Our friends over at Veritas Group, who do major gifts, said, have found that, for their clients, it's taking six or seven approaches to set a meeting up. 
six or seven. No, we usually yeah. give up after two or one. Send them an email. I haven't heard back. I don't know what's going on. Um, well, it's not, you're not the center of their world. So, you know, just keep per- persevering. But if you finally are with them, why waste the opportunity if they already seem excited? So exactly. be respectful about it. Don't be cloying. Don't be manipulative. Be respectful. Um, that, you know, if you're scared, tell them, hey, look, they didn't teach me fundraising and acting school. Um, but this is something that's been really important to me. And I would love to, could I ask you to consider a gift of and then give a dollar amount? Oh, you touched on something else that's, that's very true to my heart is the fact that I tell people all the time, you need to be your, your authentic self. Absolutely. So quit putting on the hat of what you're supposed to be like. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. And instead, like come from your heart. I mean, there's a reason why you're working for the organization to raise money. There's a big reason why. And it's because it rings so true in your heart. You want to share it with other people. And you giving them the opportunity to, to share that love in their heart, too. So Well, that's why I, I wrote Ask for That Sucker is because I found that volunteers in particular and well-meaning nonprofit people, too, get feel like they have to get tied in these weird pretzel poses. It's like they're, <laughs> they're seeing some amazing yogi and they're trying to do the same thing. And they're, they're trying to learn the spiel and what are the power phrases and how do I close and what are the right scripts to know. There isn't. It's being yourself. You're honest and integrity. You know, honesty and integrity. I can't say it enough. Um, and you know, that, I mean, part of it. Well, it's just yes, 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 yes. I'm so glad you. <laughs> so I know that it takes a certain personality to fundraise, and these are people that normally have just that gusto, that gumption, that you know, all those fun G words that they're go getters and. They, they're not as afraid. They've gotten over, for the most part, the, the main fundraisers in a, in a organization. But we all know that a lot of people need to be part of this team and, um, including board members or maybe some volunteers or we all need to be a part of, of fundraising for an organization. So my next question was for an introvert or for people that are in fear of asking, what are your top three suggestions for getting better at asking for money? <laughs> well, I was laughing when you said the right personality because I think that's a myth. Um, I, I think the right personality is if you can fog a mirror, you can have the right personality to ask for money. <laughs> if you can if yeah, breathing. Well, um, exactly. No, I said that to kind of bait you. Oh, guys. no, it's <laughs> awesome. I love that. No, I, I know that that was totally – yeah, thank you because I – well, so the introvert thing, I think if there are top three things that introverts could do to get better at asking, uh, the first one I would say is get rid of thinking that you're at a disadvantage. Um, you have such an advantage. Just because our culture doesn't celebrate introverts doesn't mean introverts aren't amazingly special. And introverts have an amazing ability that for as a verbal extrovert I find is a superpower. They can actually be quiet and listen. For so many extroverts, we're trying to think of what we're going to say next. We're not actually focusing on the words that are being said. So as an introvert, um, and I find this with board members in particular, that um, they feel like they don't bring much to the table in the fundraising process. Um, and it's the, what they bring to the table is the ability of someone in leadership from the organization that will actually listen. Most of us, Stephen Covey said that most of us are walking around as though it's, he would say, remember when you're, if you had ever had a cousin that pushed you under the water in the pond or pool and then held you down too long, your only thought, your only, your sole focus becomes oxygen. You need oxygen. And he said, most of us are walking around our lives looking for psychological oxygen. Will somebody please hear my story? Will somebody please acknowledge me? 
Wow. And so as a fundraiser, it's it's really I feel like it's sacred task, sacred duty because we get to hear people, we get mm-hmm. to to actually listen to them, um, and we're not just friend raising. I think that's a cop out. Um, I, I, although Hildy Gottlieb and you may do this differently, but Hildy Gottlieb has a good way of fundraising and fundraising. But I think friend, you know, we're raising funds. We have a moral obligation to be good stewards of the donor money that that is and patron money that's funding our budgets. Um, and so part of that as a fundraiser is to raise funds. It's not just to be, develop friendships. But we, one of the side benefits is we get to develop these friendships and we get to get, you know, people aren't being asked by their kids, Hey mom, hey dad, what's the legacy you want to leave in the world? We get to ask that though. We get to ask these big questions if we are, have earned the right to be at the table with them. So, uh, so the first thing is introverts. Yeah. Yeah. So introverts get over the fact that you're not, that you're at a disadvantage and start using your strengths. Um, Part of it is also learning a script. Uh, uh, scripts can be very helpful for introverts. So they don't, you don't have to think like verbal extroverts. Boom, boom, boom. You know, give me chaos. I'll make it up as I go, and, I, and I'll be energized by it. I won't be depleted or drained. But um, Bob Berg, in a book called Winning Without Intimidation, he's upgraded it now to uh, probably a decade ago. He, it's something else. Uh, but it's when if you googled Winning Without Intimidation. You, you'll find the the new one to adversaries and allies. That's his new one. Mm. Um, he has a question, a series of five uh, questions that are feel good questions, and the first three are really helpful for fundraisers. So if you're at any social event or um, whether one on one or in a networking event, you can ask people, "What do you do when you're not here?" And I never ask, "What do you do for work?" Because um, early on in our marriage, we decided that my income seemed like the one that would be more viable. We wanted one of our one of ours to be at home with our kids. And mine seemed more viable. So, uh, but when people would ask my wife, what do you do for work? She works her tail off as a mom and a homeschooler, but exactly. it's not, not appreciated by our culture. Um, so she felt second class. So I don't ever ask them that. I ask, what do you do when you're not here? And you get the weirdest answers. You'll get mm-hmm. answers, you'll get family answers, you'll get hiking answers, you'll get all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and then really, so the first question, what do you do when you're not here? Second question is, wow, that sounds fascinating. How'd you get into that? People love sharing their origin story, whether it's starting their company. I asked one person at this company, I asked him 20 minutes, an alum from a school I worked for, can you give me 20 minutes? Um, he ended up giving me four hours because I was sincerely. <laughs> um, and then, so, and then you can, fl- so even those two questions, how do you get, you know, what do you do when you're not there? How do you get, you know, uh, how do you get started? And that can be incredibly, incredibly helpful, just stock questions and they don't go tired. Because everybody's story is different and you feel comfortable knowing I have a purpose here. My purpose is to ask them these two questions. And I think the third thing is um, it can be helpful for introverts. There's a my friend Andrea Kilstedt wrote a book on uh, fundraising personalities. It's asking styles. I think if mm-hmm. you asking styles profile dot com, it'll lead you over to the to a, a greater a, uh, assessment so you can see what style you are. But um, she's. She's the first one. I always thought that if you're going to raise money, you have to pick up the phone. Just pick up the phone. Don't write a letter to lead it or an email to lead it. That's just just pick up the phone and get it done. And it was she, after 15 years of fundraising, that she's the one who showed me that that was just because I'm a verbal extrovert. Introverts tend to like to write the letter out or write the email out, and it's mm-hmm. not a cop out. It's actually helping them kind of figure out the flow of the event. And for an introvert receiving it, it's helpful to know what the expectations are. So it can be helpful for you if you're going to go into a solicitation in particular to just write it out. And even if you ever send a letter, write out the letter, dear Joe, this is what, you know, this is why this cause is so important. And I think it'll be a really good fit for you just to help you organize your thoughts. 
so that when you're there, it's one less hindrance to you making the clear ask. That's fabulous that you touched on um, getting to, instead of asking what they do for work, you're getting to know them as a person, which I think is really important, and that is going towards the fundraising part of this whole uh, aspect, which I absolutely love that concept. And um, I like the fact that I, I think we do as a culture need to start looking at what the positive aspects of for each type of personality. Oh, it's so and important. not only do we need to, it's, it's part of that get to know yourself and be your authentic self and use your strengths in order to uh, make this an, a very easy process for you. But it's also uh, to the effect that the more we know about somebody, the more we're going to know what type of personality they are too. And we'll be able to match up a little bit better personality in order to make it easier to ask. Because you may end up with introvert donors because everybody's different. And it might be better instead of having some, uh, I just get this image in my mind, some verbal maniac going in there and talking their ear off. And they're like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can handle this energy. That you might want to match them up with another introvert that yeah. Speak to their level. Absolutely. So, um, it's a sign of respect. See, I hear most exactly. people. I like the way you're saying it because it mirrors what I say. Um, it's not, I've heard some people call it, uh, basically manipulation. You're just trying to mirror their, their style so that you can manipulate them to getting to a yes. And, and that's really, I don't, that's not where I'm coming from. I'm coming right. from a place of intense respect for the other person and trying to speak their dialect and trying to remove everything Every hindrance for them actually hearing the clear, the clear ask, whether it's an ask for advice, an ask for money, an ask for uh, material, whatever the ask is, helping them really hear it and not hear all the other stuff that maybe I might miss because I didn't understand how they spoke and what their dialect was. So how important do you think this is going off, off the top of my head, but how important do you think it is to like have a team there to fundraise? Because I've noticed that, that some people give the suggestion, you know, bring two people in so you guys can have both strengths there in order to to talk with the the donors. I have a great story of yeah, needing to, important importance of going in pairs. Uh, honestly, I still teach that because you do see different things and you do have different cues, and okay. because you have the accountability of all of us that have gone for soliciting know that there's a, there's a feel of ah, the timing wasn't right, which is usually a lie. We never let the donor tell us the timing isn't right. We try to be the parent and make up the mind for the donor, which is never a good thing. We should give them the respect of making up their own mind and letting us tell, telling, letting them share that mind with us. Um, But uh, so when you have two people, like if you and I were to go to solicit someone, neither one of us would want to be the one that chickened out. And so we're more likely to actually make the ask. Um, I, I find that that often hinders people from – it's a great practice. It's really helpful. It can be really good at building an organization that has a lot of strong solicitors because mm-hmm. we do need that. Many staff travel in and out of organizations, but the volunteers stay there, so it's it's better for the health of creating mm-hmm. a culture of philanthropy at an organization. But um, we got to pay the bills. we got a lot of stuff to do. There are shows to perform, put on. There's there's you know production calendars. and So sometimes it's just get out there and do it yourself. Um, and mm. I mean, you're not going to raise money unless you're making asks. It's that clear. I mean, if you did nothing else and you just started asking more people for money, you may really tick off a lot of people because you might not do it well, but you'd still get more money than if you didn't ask at all. People aren't just going to magically realize, oh, this is something I need to give to. They need to be asked. Um, and, and it happens in anywhere in life. People that 
you know, when they're getting married, nobody just magically realizes, I want to marry you. There's got to be an ask in there. Um, nobody magically knows when you go to a restaurant um, if you're with someone else. They ask you, is it just one or two? Or would you like coffee or water? Uh, there's asking is just part of our culture. And so we need to get out and do that about this too. There's just so many emotional – we have to get straight with the emotional – scripts that we have about money we, that we usually get from growing up uh, and, and from our faith traditions. Our family and our faith traditions often color our view of money. And um, it's, not the, it's not the lenses everybody sees money through. Some people see it as a very healthy tool and other people see it as a really evil, dirty thing. Uh, but we just need to be real with that so that we don't bring that into the conversation too. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, it is. Wow. I was just thinking that. Oh my goodness. That's another <laughs> podcast right there. And, and I've been uh, reading about Lynn Twist and, and all what, that she brings to the table and the, the soul of money. And it's really fascinating, but um, yeah, we don't have enough time to go I there. Know. <laughs> even though it's, it's so fascinating, but, um, but yes, I, I do feel that we do need to, it is part of our culture asking and, and people won't give until they're asked. So we, we do need to start feeling a little bit more comfortable and we need to learn what our strengths are in order to make it easier to relate and to ask people for that support. I'd argue that we need to ask more. One of the things that Jim, Jim Shapiro on the West coast does, is he has a great story of um, an executive director being scared to ask two sisters for a hundred thousand dollars. And he said, well, the goal is a million. What if you ask them for a million? And she felt like she was over the top stretching it, but she trusted Jim and she did. She asked that, you know, you can respectfully just say, I don't even know if this is in the ballpark, but would you consider a million dollar gift to this thing? And the sisters looked at each other and with very little deliberation, uh, as the way I remember him telling it, they said, we'd be delighted to give a million. That is so gutsy, and I love the fact that that had a happy ending. Yeah, and it's gutsy and respectful. So you don't have to be a jerk when you're doing this, but people don't usually negotiate a gift up. That's why I, in my gift range calculator, I have a higher gift level than the Blackbaud one, uh, because I think that you know if you ask for twenty five thousand, people may negotiate down to twenty or ten. But if you start at ten, they're not going to just magically realize that they could give twenty. Um, so helping see people people see the larger thing and not making them feel like a jerk if that doesn't fit where they're at right now is really important. Do you find it easier to ask if you ask in a range? I can't. Like, I, I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot <laughs> when we just, they give $10 and we just keep asking them for that $10. Okay. But do you think it's better to then ask them for $25 or ask them for 15 to $25 to get them to level up? Whenever you ask in a range, you just have to be honest with yourself that the low end of the range is the number that they're going to hear. Um, we don't hear the high end. I'm a, I'm more of a fan. And if it's smaller amounts like that, maybe. Um, but what I'm, I'm a bigger fan of asking a complete dollar amount. So if it's a thousand dollars for the year, I'd like to say that up front. And I, I talked to my steering wheel. I practice this. You know, I'd like to ask you to consider a thousand dollars for the year. Would you consider a gift of a thousand dollars? Would you do this? Because then you get the deer in the headlights look of, oh my goodness, they want me to invest thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, whatever is big for you. Um, and then you get to be the good guy afterwards of saying, well, you, you know, that's eighty four dollars a month. If you want to do monthly installments, oh, I could do it that way. Uh, and I love going into board meetings and saying, now for everybody here, and I check with the executive directors first. Um, you, if you're not giving a thousand dollars a year to your organization, you should because isn't this organization as important to you as your cable bill or your cell phone bill? 
and I just let it sit there. <laughs> that's, in, that's interesting. I, I, you brought up another point that, and that's why I love talking to you, is the fact that you also need to give them different opportunities on how to pay you, how to donate. But not up front. So, Don't cloud it. Give that. them the donation question first, and then you set up, you put them on the spot by asking them to take action, and then everything after putting them on the spot can be circling around to being on the same side of the table with them. Oh, we could do that quarterly. I did that after, and this is good for people that are already in campaigns and whatever. When there was an economic hard time, I would call back all of the people that had pledges and said, "I the economy seems to have uh, sent a lot of us into just re-looking re at our finances. If you right. need to renegotiate your t your pledge payment schedule to make it quarterly or, or biannual or you know, yearly, let me know. We're totally open to working with you. Oh, I love that. So you're you're not only just asking new donors that you're actually going back to your your faithful donors and saying, what can we do for you to make it easy for you? Right. And I what I was that. really I saying that. though was, we're not letting you off the hook. Uh, that was what I wanted to say, <laughs> yeah. but I did think that would be a really really compelling call. But people <laughs> love this. People are just thrilled. You you care. Thank you so much. Um, we would be, it would be easier for us to do it quarterly right now. Well, great. And, and people just don't know those options exist. We know they exist. Right, right. So we that. have to give it to them and, and educate them and it's help them to help you type of thing. So yeah, definitely. Um, so here's a, here's a subject that we all are, are like really thinking about is the fact that you have board members. I'm a board member in some organizations. And part of our job is to raise money for the organization. That, that's mainly a strategic planning, raising money. So what are your tips for getting board members on board for fundraising and getting them more comfortable? That's a great question, one I get all the time. So there are so many good ways, and especially if you're aware of personalities, um, oftentimes what we try to do is force board members into the one way of asking that seems to be more extroverted or more professional salesman type. Um, so, uh, you're, you know, there, the link that's with this, you can, uh, send people over to my site and they can get a, a free ebook called 21 ways to get your board members engaged in nonprofit fundraising. And many people are actually printing that out and using that as an onboarding technique. This is the first way is you have make your own gift first. People know if you haven't made a gift first, it's amazing how our internal, you know, integrity checkers or BSometers, whichever you prefer to call it. No, if somebody hasn't made a gift and everybody should be giving cash as well as time and talent. Um, but then there are 20 other ways that they can support it. The, the there's, yeah, so there's, there's a whole smorgasbord. If there's only one for this podcast or for this recording, what I would say is, um, get your board members to start thanking donors. Uh, there was one soup kitchen in, uh, Atlanta who board chair would not allow his board meeting to start until every, every board member at the table had made three thank you calls to donors. So the staff would give them a list saying, this is a new donor or a returning donor and their phone number. And they'd call them up and say, hi, this is Mark. I'm with the such and such board. Um, the staff tells me that you're one of our supporters. And I just wanted to say thank you. We couldn't do what we do without you. And that's it. And it does blow people away. I received a call from uh, the Colorado Public Radio. And um, I only gave $10 for that, that go around and somebody actually called me from the board to thank me. I was blown away. So that's, I'm so glad you've had that experience because I've had the experience too. I was waiting for the other shoe to fall. I was waiting for the, the ask for the next money. And the fact that that never came was amazing. But can you imagine how good the board meetings are after all that gratitude is expressed? Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. get addicted to saying thank you. And that is a great kind of gateway drug to fundraising. 
It sets our nonprofits apart because most nonprofits are really awful at thanking donors. So not only are we setting ourselves up in a donor's mind as an organization that cares, we're also training our board members that, hey, this isn't necessarily taking from people. We're not mugging people or chugging, charity mugging. We're actually, um, we're actually, it, it's, it's mutual. It's not, it's not a one way street. Um, what you have, we experienced, Sushana, was a, um, the public radio people have actually studied this and shown that board members that make the calls to donors, donors that receive a board member thank you, and I think it's within 48 hours, but I don't know if that time frame is necessary. Um, those donors tend to give 25% more in the following year than the donors that don't get the call. So, wow. so your, don't, your board members having a thank you, which some people feel like isn't affecting the direct line, you know, the bottom line and all, it really is. Uh, Jay Love of Bloomerang suggests that figure out what your annual gift is. Take all of your don your, all of your donative revenue. So whatever your philanthropy was, divide it by the number of donors and that becomes your average gift. Um, and yeah, there are outliers and all, whatever, however you want to, you know, for people that are more techie, you can figure something out. But if your like average gift is $250, anyone that gets over a $250 gift, if you don't get, if you're getting less than five of those a day, your executive director should be making a thank you call to you. Um, and the, the, every week there can be a report of people that made that average gift or above, um, that could be, and so yeah, as an executive director, you could be making, uh, and when it gets to about 10 calls a day, then you might want to think about having other people make it. But mm-hmm. uh, those are one of the best, cheapest and most eff- effective ways to retain donors, which if you retain donors, it's a lot cheaper than acquiring donors. You often lose money on the first time you try to get a new donor. Um, so it's, it, makes the bottom line better. It makes the organization healthier and it also um, serves donors well. Oh yes, definitely. I, I think I love the fact that you are, are touching on, not even touching on, but you're, you're, you're like a, a cheerleader for stewardship. And I, I feel that a lot of organizations, donors can slip through the cracks without that stewardship. So um, it, it's just so important to keep following up to thank you and, and get the gratitude going and, and um, definitely be in touch with them after the donation, even before you ask again. So I, I think that's great that you're bringing that up too. Well, thank you. That's, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> We agree on that, and we, we touched on this. We we have a little bit more time, and I had a couple more questions. Well, let's talk about this. Handling objections, is there a fail-safe suggestion you give to people? You know, one of those objections can be so scary because you don't know what you're going to answer, and you what if you don't have the right answer? And for most of us, that doesn't, that doesn't really have to be – we can let that go. Most people know that we don't have all the answers. Um, what I have found to be really important in, in objections is, first of all, seeing them as objectives. And I, I can't remember the, the author who helped me see that. But if somebody gives an objection, hey, I'd like to give but, and then they show a roadblock, that's saying, here's a hurdle I see in making this gift. Help me make that action. And so if you help them overcome it, it can be a little bit more than uh, – you know, it used to be, if you've ever done sales training, it can feel like being the objection answer becomes a role in itself. And it's like, get, hit me again, hit me again. I've got another answer to this objection. And that doesn't really set up for a conducive relationship. So seeing it as, I, I, seeing it as a cry for help or as a please help me figure out how I can get around this can be helpful. But I love that. But yes. the biggest thing is remembering your, your role. Your role isn't to be the objection answer person. Your role is to be the fundraiser. And mm-hmm. 
So there's another author, and I think I credit him somewhere because uh, I better. Uh, but the two questions that I've used consistently are, first of all, like, so, okay, Charlie, if if I can answer this to your satisfaction, is this the only thing standing in the way from you making a gift? And that's a great question because it helps people. You get, no, you know what? I really don't care about how it's going to be receded. I can't stand the way you treated my son. You guys were so rude to my son when he came in here with his girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. And so you get to the heart of it, like real brass tacks, not the surface stuff. So that first one, is it, if, if I can answer this to your satisfaction, is it the only thing standing in the way of you making a gift? The second one is similar but also more important, um, is if I can't answer this to your satisfaction, does it will it stand in the way of your making a gift? Some of us have board members in particular who are so close to the organization, they keep coming up with the same objections that you think you've answered over the last three years. If you say, hey, look, and you know you can't answer to their satisfaction just because you haven't been able to find that you've tried for three years to do the different lingo. And this is a personal experience that I had myself. And so I asked the two questions together. The first one was, you know, I wanted to make sure that that was the receding and the way it was going to be credited was the only question. And I knew I'd been trying to answer that for, for three years. So when he said, yes, it's the only thing standing in the way. Then I said, so if I can't answer that to your satisfaction, will it stand in the way of you tripling your gift? I was asking the board member to triple his gift. And I felt as scared as I did when I'd asked for money. Um, the first, my first ask for money, feeling like the, being quiet was scary. I felt as scared asking him that question. And he said, you know, no, it really doesn't. If you think this is the right way to, to invest, then yeah, let's, let's go ahead. And, and he became a sponsor of that particular event, which, uh, effectively tripled his, his annual donation. So those wow. two questions can be as close to a fail safe as I've found. Great. I love that. That That's a good, it's getting to the heart of the matter and being on their side and your, all the things that we talked about before, you know, listening effectively, mindful listening and, and really being, um, a part of their, their team in order to make the donation. Nice. I, I love that. That's, it's that's so collaborative. Practice. Yeah. That's so, 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 uh, before you go, I definitely wanted to tell our listeners that Mark wrote a book called Ask Without Fear. A simple guide to connecting donors with what matters to them most. So if you want to take a few seconds to, to talk a little bit about this, I will supply a link on my podcast page as well as send it out into the, the social media universe. Yeah. Well, I, Ask Without Fear was written for typical people to learn how to ask for money. I found that there are a lot of good, well-meaning people, and partly because of the community theater that I worked with, um, they were just sincere and dedicated and were hobbled by a lack of funds and and it wasn't there they were very close to getting funding that they needed so i wrote ask without fear for that it's become a series so there's one for librarians where i can get into really deep um library issues the terminology and stuff that people use um and there's one for christian ministry so if any of your performing organizations are consider themselves a christian organization also there's just some some unique in things that get in the way of asking for faith-based organizations but Ask Without Fear was a primer for board members. It was written to help release board members. I wanted them to read it. It was thin. It is thin. Um, and it's helping them get off, give them the, the energy they, they feel they need and equip them with their things to say to make the clear ask. Um, and I'm, I'm really honored to say that it's in its 10th year in print now and it's sold, you know, over 10,000 copies. It's helped people around the world. Uh, and it translates to different cultures. So that's one of the neat things about this book is that it's been translated into Dutch and Chinese and Polish and uh, wow. Spanish. Um, and I've seen 
I it's just taken on a life of its own. Uh, that's, so that's fantastic. if you're looking for a way to get that to your board to get engaged, um, you can use the link on the page to sign up for the 21 Ways ebook. But you can also um, get you know get just get one for yourself or, or get it for uh, get the bundle. There's uh, each of the books are are packaged with a 10 bundle for boards, uh, so there's a discount uh, because this is your organization worth being is worth being fully funded, um, and these are some tools that don't cost a lot that can help you do that. Exactly, and and we do need to start investing in ourselves so other people will invest in us as well. I completely agree that we need to be investing more in ourselves, and so part of what I've tried to do uh, is I, there's a another service we have called the Nonprofit Academy, which there's a link on this page too, uh, because that is a, a $19 a month way of getting over eight, access, instant access to over 80 trainings, uh, mm-hmm. seminars, and and um, and templates and. It also has it gives you a new training every month, a new a live coaching call, so you can bring to the call any questions or problems that you're having, and the group will help you with them. And there's a Facebook group where we uh, members can pose questions 24/7. So there really are great ways to get training that don't have to cost a lot. So I want to thank you, Mark. I will definitely supply all these links on the the podcast page, so people can click on that and and uh, look at the resources that you, you talked about here today. But I want to thank you so much for being on the ADS podcast. I enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you so much for having me here. It's really on, an honor. Thank you, and I hope we can do it again. It's been a while since I've had a guest on the ADS podcast. I'm, I'm glad to have brought in fundraising expert Mark Pittman for you. He has a very good energy and a great way of thinking about fundraising. And if you want to get involved in what he is doing, again, I will be putting the links on the podcast page that's buildmyaudience.com slash podcasts. And you will be able to find everything there that we have been talking about. The conversation was so wonderful. I did have to cut out a few bits for timing purposes, but hopefully we can bring him back on the show and get even more in depth with asking without fear. Thanks so much for joining us for this ADS podcast. Again, you can uh, get involved in my world at buildmyaudience.com. And if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, you can supply it on the podcast page, or you can send me an email at ads at buildmyaudience.com. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.